You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. Okay, well, we have spent the last few months uh, together working through the opening chapters of Genesis. And let's just think for a moment about where we've been. Genesis starts uh, with a huge announcement, Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God. God is the main subject of the first sentence in the Bible, primarily because God is the main subject of the Bible. Right in the beginning, God, he created the heavens and the earth. So anytime someone asks you the question, where did the universe come from? Here is the Bible's answer. Here's how the Bible explains where everything you see originated. God, Genesis 1-1, God brought the universe into existence. Then the rest of Genesis chapter one is showing God preparing a place. He's preparing the land. It's what uh, the rest of the New Testament would call the promised land. He's preparing this place for his people. Then God creates our first parents. And after he creates them, he officiates their first wedding. He joins them together. And then he turns them loose in the garden. Um, The Hebrews had a word to describe what life was like there in the early chapters of Genesis. It was this word shalom. Everything was as it should be. Like when you think about life and it should be this way and not that way, that's what our first parents experienced, shalom. Everything was as it should be. Our first parents, human beings, the crown of God's creation were enjoying God together. They were enjoying one another. They were enjoying God's gift of a beautiful garden, this beautiful creation. And out of the 1,189 chapters that make up the Bible, that describes two of them, shalom. That's pretty sad, isn't it? Out of 1,189, we get two like that, everything the way it's supposed to be. Then you turn the page to Genesis chapter 3, and the catastrophe of Genesis 3 cannot be overstated. Uh, It it starts in Genesis chapter 3 verse 1 with this ominous opening verse. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Then you just keep reading in Genesis chapter 3, five verses later, the fruit is in our first parent's mouth. And with that forbidden fruit, sin, like this vandal, It invades, breaks into God's creation. And when sin broke in, it broke everything. Everything. It was no longer the way it was supposed to be. Ryan worked through some of this last week, how sin has broken the way that we even relate to ourselves. It's broken the way we relate to one another. It's broken the way we relate to God's good gift of, of his creation. And most importantly, it's broken the way that we relate to God. Uh, Then you keep reading in Genesis chapter 3, God comes with these curses uh, toward the end of of Genesis 3. The first one is to the serpent. And inside this curse uh, to the serpent, this interesting moment happens. We get our first sort of gospel glimpse in the Bible. Uh, We learn in in the middle of that curse, uh, we learn that there is one who will one day come from the woman who will crush the head of the snake. Uh, Then we get the curses to Eve. Uh, We learn that sin has sort of woven its way into the family. It's it's woven its way into the way that that Eve is going to relate to her husband. 
and the way that she's going to bring forth children into the world, then to Adam. That sin has woven its way into his work. Thorns and thistles are going to make everything difficult. Everybody who's working a job says amen to that, right? Everything's hard. God announces in the opening chapters of Genesis that because of sin and the brokenness that it has brought with it, that all future food will come from sweat of the brow. It's going to be hard work. It's going to come through sweat. And then Genesis chapter 3 ends by saying this in verse 24. And God drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, when you get to the end of Genesis chapter 3, in many ways, it's meant to get you to the edge of your seat. It's meant to begin to... to put in you questions that just have a way of beginning to bubble up. Like, what in the world is going to happen to Adam and Eve east of Eden? Kicked out of the garden, driven out of the garden. What is going to happen to them? What is life going to be like in this broken world? This world who has been completely vandalized by sin. What is life going to be like? And Genesis chapter 4 is meant to answer that question. What is life going to be like east of Eden? In this world that's still beautiful, yet at the same time so severely broken. What should we expect here? That's what Genesis 4 is meant to answer. It gives us our first glimpse of life outside of the garden. In a lot of ways, you could think of Genesis 4 like a movie trailer, right? It is the preview of what is to come. It's giving us the sample of what the rest of the story is going to hold, what life will be like east of Eden. And here is what it shows. Our life east of Eden will be marinated in these two words. Your your life now east of Eden, every life east of Eden will be marinated by these two words, sin and grace. Sin and grace and grace. What what you're going to find in every sort of story moving forward from Genesis chapter 3 is man bringing mounds of sin and God bringing even bigger mounds of grace. Sin and grace. That's the pattern that we're seeing in Genesis chapter 4. So I'm going to work through this, this passage with you thinking about it in light of that pattern. Sin and grace. Sin and grace. That's the pattern that we see. So chapter 4 starts with a burst of optimism. Look at verse 1. Now Adam knew his wife and she conceived and bore Cain. So we know from Genesis chapter 3 that Eve felt the effects of sin in childbearing. But that pain soon gave way to joy as she welcomed a new little baby boy into the world. Saying there in verse 1, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Now, there's some debate on what she means by that. I think what's happening there is she is, this this moment of, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord is a declaration of faith. That's what I think is happening in that text. I agree with one commentator who said, Eve saying, in essence, God made man, and now with the help of the Lord, I have made a second man. I think Eve rightly understands and sees Cain as a work of God. And just imagine there in Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, just imagine the the joy and wonder that Eve is feeling. 
She's looking at this little baby boy in the eyes, probably with the promise of Genesis 3.15 right in the background. There's going to be one come of a woman who's going to crush the head of the snake. And she is likely filled with all sorts of joyful anticipation that, that maybe, just maybe, this one will be the snake crusher. But as it turns out, Cain's no Christ. He's a killer. That's what we're seeing in the story. Verse 2, and again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel, Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, God had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. Sin and grace, sin and grace. Here's the first thing we see in this text it is what we might call sin of the heart. We're seeing sin and it's a particular type of sin. It's sin of the heart. So Genesis 4 introduces us to two brothers, Cain. The older brother, he is a farmer. Abel, the younger brother, he is a shepherd. And both bring an offering to the Lord. Now, if you can picture that scene, uh, think of it this way. They're going to church together. That's what's happening in Genesis 4. It's the first church service, right? They go to church together and they're worshiping God together. And they did in their worship service what we do every week in our worship service. They brought their gifts to the Lord. Cain brought his gift from the field, the fruit of his harvest, and Abel brought his gift from the flock, right? They're, they're, they're expressing their generosity to the Lord. And God delights in Abel's sacrifice. It brings a smile to the heart of God, but God rejects Cain's sacrifice. Now the question instantly becomes, why is that? What is going on in this text? Why does God reject Cain's but delight in Abel's? Well, we know that God doesn't just draw arbitrary lines, right? So, so we can come to this text knowing that it's not just some weird arbitrary sort of difference that, that the Lord is drawn between these two. But we can also come to this text knowing that, that God does see a discernible difference between these two sacrifices. And what God sees makes all the difference to God. These differences make all the difference. He accepts one and he rejects the other. But what are those differences? Now, some commentators get to this text and they're going to say that the difference is the type of sacrifice. So what God really wanted was a blood sacrifice, like an animal being slain life for life. But that would, I think that's highly unlikely. In Leviticus chapter 2, uh, God authorizes both of these two types of sacrifices. And by the way, this was not uh, for their guilt. It wasn't for their sin. It was an offering of thanksgiving. And Leviticus chapter 2 says, grain offering is good. No problem with that. So a gift from the harvest or a gift from the flock, all of those things are acceptable to the Lord. So I don't think that's how you would explain what the difference is. But at the same time, when we're looking at this, here is what we know. God is seeing through their sacrifice. He is seeing through their worship. He's seeing, in our context, through our Bible reading. He's seeing through our generosity. He's seeing through all of those sacrifices from, from Cain and Abel all the way to their hearts. 
That's what we're learning in this text. This is one of the insights this text gives us, is God is looking through the sacrifices. He sees through it down into the human heart. This is why uh, we love to say around here that it's not what you appear to be that matters. It's not what other people think you are. It's not what you appear to be that matters, but what you actually are that matters. What, what God sees. And he sees through all of our masks. He sees through all of our sort of lavish giving. He sees through all of those things all the way down into the heart. God sees. He sees what other people can't see. And this text gives us some clues about what God sees in Cain. One way we could describe it is that God sees, uh, he sees a view of Cain that is half-hearted. Cain is half-hearted. Look at the way the text describes these two offerings. In verse 3, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. Very simple, straightforward, an offering from the fruit of the ground. Look at verse 4. And Abel also brought, but it adds a detail. He, he also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. You see the detail? It's the firstborn of the flock. It's of the fat or the rich portions of the flock. So, so here's what we know about these two sacrifices. While in some ways Cain gave what was left, Abel gave what was best. The rich portions, the, the fat portions. Cain gave a portion. Abel gave what was prized. Abel ran his hand through his flock and said, what, what, which are my best? This is the breeder stock, right? This is the ones that I want the, the rest of my flock to look like. This is, these are the ones that, that I want to use to grow my flock. This is my future potential. This is everything going forward for me. But yet my heart is struck with such awe and gratitude and thankfulness to God that my best is on the table before the Lord. But not so with Cain. Cain brought some of what was left after he took the best. Cain's question was, um, what's the minimum I could get by with and be okay here? I could, if I just brought this and I withheld all of these things, how much could I withhold and God still be okay with me? They're just asking two radically different questions. If you were there and you were observing these sacrifices, and this is what's so humbling about this, and scary in some ways. If you were there observing these two sacrifices, these two moments of them bringing their gifts to the Lord, I doubt that you could, uh, you could have discerned any difference between the two. I don't think you would have said, oh man, Abel's, that's where it's at, and Cain's, uh, that's not, no, that's not good. I doubt you would have said that. I doubt you would have noticed the difference. But God did, because God sees. It's not what we appear to be that matters, but what we actually are. And those differences, those differences between these two offerings, these two sacrifices made all the difference. Cain's sacrifice is half-hearted. The New Testament alludes to this when it's looking back on this story in Hebrews chapter 11, verse four. Here's what we read from the author of Hebrews. He says, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, 
through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, faith, though he died, he still speaks. When the author of Hebrews looks back on this moment, part of what he's picking up on is Abel's worship, his offering, his sacrifice was wholehearted. It came from a heart that was full of faith. While on the other hand, Cain's came with a bare minimum. Cain's came with a play-it-safe mentality. Cain's came with a, with a sort of view of God that says, God, um, I, I'm going to give some, but, but God, you should probably be thankful for this small tip that I'm giving. I'm going to give some, but God, you, sh- you should be so glad that I'm giving any. It came from that type of a heart. It required no faith. And God saw the difference. Cain was half-hearted. But when God looks through the sacrifice, we also see something else in the heart of Cain. The Cain is also hard-hearted. This text doesn't show us how God communicated his rejection of Cain's offering, uh, but he did. And Cain knew that God had rejected his offering. Now, let's ask the question, what would we hope to see? Uh, Cain's offering is rejected, but what would we hope to see in a healthy heart, an open heart, a tender heart before the Lord? What would we hope to see a, a person do in that moment of rejection before God? What I want to read in Genesis 4 is something like this. And Cain fell on his face before the Lord and said, Oh God, I am sorry. I have been half-hearted. And my half-heartedness showed up on the altar in my sort of play-it-safe worship, in my bring-the-bare-minimum sacrifice. It, It showed up in all of those ways, and all of those things are belittling to you, oh God. So God, would you forgive me? God, would you restore me? God, would you bring my heart back to life so that I could see you as the greatest treasure in the universe? God, would you do that for me? Oh God, help. That's what I would love to have read, wouldn't you? Wouldn't Genesis 4 be amazing if that's what we read next? But but instead, we read this. So Cain was very angry and his face fell When corrected by God, Cain's cold heart seethed with anger. It's not what you appear to be that matters, but but what you actually are. And I think this is a good point in the story to just stop and begin to ask ourselves the question of where do we see ourselves in the story? We would all love to be like Abel. But the truth is there's a lot of Cain in all of us. Where do you see yourself in the story? And as we'll see in this story, a million other sins start right here. And the right here is indifference to God. Just a a way of looking at God that just says, God, I'm just sort of bored with you. I'm indifferent with you, God. My heart's just not fully alive to you. A million other sins start right there with indifference. As it turns out, indifference is deadly. It, It turns deadly. A million sins in our life start right there. And remember, Cain is at a church service, right? I mean, he's... He's in the building. He's watching there online. It's Sunday morning. He's brought his gifts. He's doing his thing, right? He is, he, he is representing the person who is sitting in a chair in a church on a Sunday morning. 
That's who he's representing. He's representing the guy saying, God, I'm here, but but you're really not the most important thing in my life. I'm here just to check the box so that I can get around to what's most important in my life. He's here representing a church-going, indifferent-to-God person. Half-hearted, playing it safe. God, I'm just sort of bringing the bare minimum just just to sort of get by. How much can I withhold and you still be okay with this whole operation? He's representing that person. And I just wonder how many of us fit there today. And this is a moment, if so, where we get to respond in a way that is unlike Cain. We can bring our indifference to the, to the Lord. That we can ask Jesus to warm our cold hearts. To change our indifference. To bring our hearts back to life in God. What's so scary about what we see Cain represent, right? He is representing church-going indifference. What's so scary about that is in many ways, Cain represents the dominant religion of our day, of our time. He's representing, uh, in some ways, even the norm in our culture. Good, moral, church-going indifference. And today, God just inviting us out of that. He's looking at all of us and saying, if that's you, I put this story in the Bible so that you could come awake to that and you could respond in a different way. And he's just embedded this warning into the text. That indifference is deadly. It will kill you and others. This is what Genesis 4 is trying to bring to the table for us. The first thing we see is sin of the heart. Secondly, we get grace. Grace. Um, This text is really amazing in that God doesn't leave Cain in his sort of half-heartedness. He doesn't leave him in his hard-heartedness. No, he comes to Cain. He, He pursues Cain. God comes to Cain. He initiates in verse 6. The Lord said to Cain. He comes and he speaks to Cain. He says to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? That's an amazing scene. This is God coming to his kids when they're on the verge of their life, or on the verge of wrecking their lives. This is God doing everything he can to put a wall between us and the ruin our hearts want. Uh, Cain, why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? God pursues Cain, but he doesn't stop with pursuing Cain. He also pleads with Cain. Look at verse 7. If you do well, Cain, will you not be accepted? Uh, To do well means, Cain, if you will turn from your indifference... If you will open your heart again to me, Cain, if you will come with no preconditions, with no strings attached, Cain, if you'll come with an open heart, Cain, if you do well, will it not go well with you, Cain? God is looking at Cain and saying, Cain, I I want more than a sacrifice from you. I, I I want the sacrifice of you, Cain. I want you to be a living sacrifice, Cain. 
Cain, I want your whole heart to be embedded in my whole heart. Cain, that's what I'm after. That's what I want. Cain, I want you to repent. I want you to turn from your indifference. I want you to lay yourself on the altar. And Cain, if you do that, would you not be accepted, Cain? Cain, would I not delight in that? And then God looks at Cain and says, Cain, there is a fork in the road and one path will lead you back home to me and the other path will lead you into grave danger. Look at verse seven. And if you do not do well, Cain, so, so you can, that one path is you do well and, and your, your sacrifice is accepted, Cain, but if you do not do well, this is path two. Sin is crouching at the door, Cain. Its desire is contrary to you. Its, its desire is to overwhelm and devour you. It's contrary to you, but you must rule over it. So think about Genesis 3 and Genesis 4 for a moment. It's a really interesting, uh, just in how we're getting a full-orbed picture of how sin works in our life. In Genesis chapter 3, sin is portrayed as something outside of us. So the, the serpent in Genesis 3 comes and tempts us. But that's not how sin is portrayed in Genesis chapter 4. In Genesis chapter 4, east of Eden, sin is portrayed as something inside of us. Sin has crawled down into the deepest places of our heart, and right there, deep in our heart, sin has made a home. It's something here, not out there. And in an act of grace, God comes with this pleading heart, and he's warning Cain. Cain, sin is crouching at your door. You've got a door right there, Cain, and sin is on the other side of it. And Cain, your hand is on the knob of the door. And if you open that door, that predator is going to pounce. It is going to be uncontrollable. What happens next? So he comes with this pleading heart. He says, Cain, don't do it. Sin is crouching at the door. This is the first time the word sin shows up in the Bible. And when that word sin shows up, it, it's, here's the imagery. It's, per, it's personified as an apex predator ready to pounce at the door, waiting to devour. That's how sin is personified the first time it shows up in the text. Now just let that imagery sink in for a moment. In every human heart, there is a door, and behind that door lies the predator of sin. And it's always hungry, always looking for the next man, I mean meal to eat. Right? This is sin's posture. It is waiting, ready to pounce. Apex predator. And God looks at Cain and says, Cain, these are really your only two options. Either you will kill the predator or it will kill you. You will kill sin or sin will kill you. What a gracious warning from the Lord. He's pleading with Cain. And this morning, God is pleading with many of us. There are many of us today who have our hand on the knob, connected to the door called sin. And right behind that door is the apex predator. 
and you are moments away from opening that door. And in the providence, the gracious providence of God, God has you here today so that you can stare at Genesis 4 and you can see sin for what it is. Something that will devour you. Something that will kill you. Something that wants to kill everything good around you. That's what sin is. And God is pleading with you today. Hey, your hand is on the door of that affair. It's on the door of adultery. Take your hand off the door. You have opened the door to pornography. Shut the door. Your hand has, has, has cracked open that door of anger. Shut the door. Bitterness, shut the door. A lack of forgiveness, shut the door. God is just pleading with you. Whatever door your hand is wrapped around called sin, whatever form it takes, God is looking at you just like he did Cain, and he's pleading, and he's saying, don't open the door. Whatever you do, do not open it. Chaos and carnage are on the other side of that door. Do not open the door. Gosh, may God give us ears to hear that today. That there are some like here today where God is just throwing you this lifeline. He's pleading grace to you today to save your life. To save your life. Because left unchecked, sin eventually crawls out of our hearts and into our hands. And that's what we see next. Not sin of the heart. What we see next is sin of the hands. Cain hardened his heart to the grace of God. God warned Cain, but Cain refused to listen to the wisdom of God. So Cain opened the door and the predator pounced. And Abel was its first victim. Look at verse 8. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. In our life east of Eden, it took us a total of eight verses to get to our first homicide. Eight verses. In God's beautiful creation, the vandal of sin has come in and broken it to the degree where eight verses later, a brother has killed his brother. And this murder is seen as a grievous murder. Now look at the way it describes it there in verse 8. Cain rose up against his brother Abel. Against his brother Abel. The word brother is used seven times in this text, mainly so that we'll see this is not just some random person as evil as that would have been. But this is Cain's brother. This is his little brother. And Cain just murdered his little brother. It's a grievous murder. The text shows us it was a premeditated murder. It, the text says Cain spoke to, his, to Abel, his brother. Most commentators agree here that when he's saying spoke, it's saying something like this. Hey, Abel, um, I've got some, uh, some of the, uh, the, the seeds. I, plant. I would love for you to come and see some of the harvest out in the field. Would you, would you mind coming along and seeing that? It's premeditated. He had like a plan to lure Cain or Abel out and murder him. It's premeditated murder. It's murder in the first degree. And it's not just premeditated, but it is personal. It is a personal murder. Um, see, today we have like the luxury of, uh, with a remote control, flying a drone and dropping a bomb a few thousand miles away, right? 
So, so we, can, we can kill other people in a very uh, depersonalized way. Not so in Genesis chapter 4. You know what you have in Genesis chapter 4? Your bare hands. That's what you have. It is a personal murder. This is looking your brother in the eye as he takes his last breath type of murder. This is you digging a grave that you're going to throw the body of your brother in. It's that sort of murder. Sin, the predator, is uncaged and it is out of control. And isn't it amazing, as soon as the door flies open, how quickly life descends into carnage and chaos. This is life east of Eden. The Bible's just kind of prepping us. Hey, do you know what you can expect in this beautiful and broken world? Well, Genesis 4. That's kind of what you can expect. Sin, mounds of sin. This is what humankind, mankind brings to the table. Mounds and mounds of sin, carnage and chaos. We love to open the door and let the apex predator in. We're all good at this. Now, I want to take a quick 90-second sidebar. 90 seconds. Because when the New Testament looks back on this moment, it gives some reasons for the murder. Why did Cain murder his brother Abel? Well, the New Testament says this about it in 1 John chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. It, it commends us, it encourages us, please don't be like Cain. It says we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. Now, why did he do that? Why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Isn't that interesting? That's, this is one reason the Bible gives for the murder of, of Abel. Cain murdered his brother, not because his brother did wrong, but because his brother, listen to this, was doing right. Isn't that, isn't that fascinating? He's murdered because he was innocent. He's murdered because he was righteous. From the, from the opening pages of the Bible, really it's the first thing out of Eden that the Lord wants you to see, that God wants you to see in the text. Here's maybe a way we could summarize it. Following God just might cost you your life. The Bible wants you to see that in the opening pages. Story one, east of Eden, you follow Jesus and everything goes terribly for you. You follow Jesus and someone wants to kill you. That's the first thing we see in the narrative. Following Jesus just might cost you your life. And now there's two reasons. I want to take a quick sidebar to say that. Reason number one, the winds in America have blown with Christianity for such a long time that many of us um, are prone to believe that a persecution-less life is the norm in Christianity. But it's not the norm. If you just read church history, here's what you're going to find is the norm. Cain kills Abel. Christians die for following Jesus. That is the norm of Christian history. Here's the second reason that, that I want to make sure to take this sidebar. Because we live in a country whose, yes, the winds have blown with Christianity for a long time, but those winds are changing. They're no longer blowing with Christianity. They're actually beginning to blow against it. 
And if we, uh, if we want to be the type of people with sort of steel in our spine who are not carried away, carried off by the changing winds, then we need a text like this. First uh, John 3 goes on to say, in light of Cain murdering his brother Abel because Abel was doing right. The text goes on to say in First John 3, Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. See, part of what Genesis 4 is inviting every follower of God to do is just accept that right there. That the world on some level is going to hate you. And it has nothing to do with you and everything to do with God. It just, part of what this text is inviting us to do is just to own that, to make peace with that, that the world will hate you. So friends, let's love Jesus and can, can we do, let's hold our lives lightly. Like both of those two things. That, that's what Genesis 4 is inviting us to do. Uh, let's enjoy the applause of Jesus and not expect the applause of the world. That's what Genesis 4 is inviting us to do. And if the time should come that a Cain comes after us, let's be faithful to our last breath. Amen? That's what the text is inviting us to do. To not be surprised. Just read the story of Abel. Cain and Abel, don't be surprised that the world hates you. Now, picture yourself as God in the story. And you're about to come and deal with this moment. How are you about to deal with this moment? If I were God in the story, here's how it would have gone. Cain sinned and God killed Cain. Uh, Cain sinned again and God found a way to kill him again. That, that's, I mean, that, it would have gone something like that. Cain would have just gotten crushed in this story. But here is how our story finishes. With more grace from God. Isn't that amazing? More, he just killed his brother. And there is more grace from God. Grace comes with questions. Look at verse 9. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? How do you hear the tone of verse 9? I hear it from a weeping heart. I hear these questions through tears in the eyes of God. Cain, where is your brother Abel? Where is he? Cain responds, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Well, Cain did know where Abel was. And yes, Cain, you are your brother's keeper. Verse 10, and the Lord said, Cain, what have you done? What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And grace comes now with some consequences. Verse 11. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. And when you work the ground, Cain, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Now, in Genesis 9, chapter, or chapter 9, verse 6, God authorizes the death penalty. He says, it, it is okay. A man's blood shall be shed when he sheds another man's blood, right? So, so he sanctions, authorizes the death penalty. But I just want you to notice in this text, rather than capital punishment, which would have been a just response from the heart of God, 
That, that would have been a righteous response. But rather than capital punishment, God gives the grace of protection to Cain. Look at verse 13. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today from the ground and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to Cain, not so. Cain, they're not going to kill you. Why? If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put on a mark on Cain, lest any who find him should attack him. When you come to the end of verse 15, here's what I think you should be feeling. There is more grace in God than there is sin in Cain. That's what you should be feeling when you get to the end of verse 15. And isn't that the story of the scriptures? Thank God that there is more grace in God than there is sin in us. When the author of Hebrews is working out all that Jesus accomplished with his life, death, and resurrection, he looks back on this story. And here's what he says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 24. He says, and when we get to Jesus, when we look at Jesus, when we see Jesus, here's what we see. The mediator of a new covenant. And to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Now, think about what happened after Cain murdered his brother. Uh, he was ignoring what he had done. He, he was trying to bury that body so deep that no one, not even God, would ever bring it up again. Uh, but God did see it. God did know about it. And when asked about it, Cain lied. And God says to Cain, Cain, Abel, your brother's, your brother's blood, Cain, it is crying out from the ground to me. I can hear it's Abel's blood speaking. And what was the blood of Abel saying? What was it crying out? It was crying out for justice. It was crying out for vindication. It was crying out for punishment. But the New Testament has a way of drawing our eyes off of Abel to the true and better Abel. His name is Jesus, the only real righteous sufferer. The only one who always did right and never wrong. The one who was hated for doing right, suffered for doing right, and eventually was crucified for doing right. Like Abel, Jesus' blood was poured onto the ground. Like Abel, Jesus' blood is crying out for justice, for vindication, for punishment. But unlike Abel, Jesus says, let me take it. Put on me the justice Cain deserves. Put on me the, the punishment that they deserve. But put on me all of their sin. Let me bear it in my body on the true. That's what the blood of Jesus cries out. That's why his blood is crying out a better word. Jesus is saying, I'll take it all. All of your half-heartedness, all of your indifference, I'll take it all. So Genesis chapter 4 really ends in an invitation to us. Will we bring our half-heartedness to Jesus? Will we bring our indifference to him? Will we allow Jesus to bear all of our sin? 
But will we allow the blood of Jesus to say a better word on our behalf? That's the question. And friends, I just want to encourage you, take the offer. Bring your indifference, your sin to Jesus today. Would you bow with me? give you just a moment to allow the Spirit of God to press into you what would be most helpful, to wipe away what wouldn't be. Friends, if you just get in your mind's eye the worst sin you can think of. Genesis 4, this is a really bad one. Brother kills brother. Just get in in your mind the worst sin you can think of. Here is where that sin begins. Indifference toward God. Coldness toward God. A heart that finds God boring and insignificant and trivial. Indifference is a deadly sin. And this morning, God wants to bring every indifferent heart in this room, they're watching online, back to life. So would you not be like Cain today? And would you bring your sin, your indifference to Jesus? His blood is crying out from the ground this morning to us. I'll take the punishment your sin deserves. I'll take the justice your indifference deserves. So Father, would you come now and speak to us? God, every person who has their hand on the knob of the door called sin. God, would you, would you give them the grace today to walk away, to take their hand off the knob? God, would you give them the, the vision today, the sight today to be able to see that behind that door lies chaos and carnage. There is an apex predator ready to devour behind that door. And God, may they back away from the door, put some new deadbolts on it, board it up today. Oh, God, help us. It's in the good name of Jesus that we ask it. Amen.